All right, we're going to pray and then we're going to we're in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, so if you've got your Bibles, we'll open up to that. But let's pray first. Father, it's a fantastic morning. Thank you for everybody who made the effort. Thank you for everybody who got here safely. And uh, we, we pray for traveling mercies as we head back home as well. And we pray for wisdom this week as we uh, suspect that we will get a lot more snow. And uh, it's on the ground now. It's not going away. So that's going to pile up pretty quick and it will make things uh, treacherous. And So we pray for you to be at work in the midst of all this anyways. We ask that this would give time for conversations. This would give time. I know for us it's really opened the doors with our neighbors. And uh, we've shoveled several driveways and uh, got us into conversations with people. And it's just been a fun thing to do. So, Lord, we give that to you this morning as we come to Mark. There's some cool stuff in this this morning. And pray that it uh, has an impact for us. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right, we're in Mark chapter 1. And we'll go back a little bit of a little bit of a review off of last week. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Where we talked about John's arrest and we talked about Galilee. We showed us that map uh, where it was, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we talked about the issue of repentance. The gospel has always been an issue of repentance for us who are human simply because of what is known as the fall. The fall of man has wrecked everything and stained everything and uh, you don't have to be very old to run into it and the impacts that it has in our world today. And so the issue of repentance, the issue of turning towards God, of letting God speak, and doing it his way instead of our way uh, is always been and always will be the issue. It is the major contention of our culture. They do not like this point. They have no interest in turning. And then we spend time talking about the difference between knowing about the Lord and knowing the Lord. There's, there's not much difference in the wording there but there's an eternal difference in the wording there. Knowing about the Lord is one thing. I know about this guy. I know about Jesus. I know, yeah, I know he had disciples and I know he said some things and it's in a book and I even know what some of those things are and I know he died on the cross and I know he rose again and that's what I know. That doesn't mean we know him. We have to know Him. High school, junior high, you're with us this morning. Listen to me. I grew up in church just like you did. It's so easy to know about Him and not know Him. Lock in that difference. It's really significant. And so we come to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And one of the very first things He does is He begins to collect and build a team. Look up here, Mark, we'll look at verses 16 and 17. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. Right, remember that picture we showed last week? You can kind of get a mental picture of that. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Probably one of the most famous quotes in the world, let alone just the Bible. 
The account, when you read it, seems to imply that Jesus just happens to be walking by the Sea of Galilee and randomly picks out some people to be on his team. Hey, there's a boat. There's some guys on it. Hey, you guys, come join me. Right? But a little background work will quickly reveal that this was not the case. First of all, they all came from small towns, uh, and they knew each other. Uh, growing up in the Midwest, this is, makes a lot of sense to me uh, with the background I grew up in. It's, it might seem kind of strange to us who, us who live out here in the Northwest. You know, half the time we don't even know our next door neighbors, right? And we have to wait till spring till everybody comes out of their cubbyhole to actually, actually meet somebody. But in Wisconsin, when I grew up, I knew the names of all the families that lived within a 10 square, 10 square mile radius of where I live. Now that may sound like, wow, you must have an incredible memory or you must be really exceptional with names or something, Steve. Not really. Uh, my dad went to all their farms, picked up milk at the farm and took it to the factory. And so we stopped at all the places and we knew all their names and um, we went around that way. And they, they, we had all lived on the same farms for decades and, and half of us were related, right? I remember coming home from high school with a girl. I was so excited and my grandmother said, oh, she's your cousin. On to bigger and better things. In the high school, in the high school of 700, there probably weren't 10 of them in that number of people, 700. There probably weren't 10 that I didn't know not only their family names, but also the order in which where they were in their family and, and where their home was. And that was quite a feat. Some of those families had 10 to 15 kids. But we all grew up together. And they all lived in the same place together. And we all rumbled together. Some of you would have that same kind of thing. My, my own father came from a family of 15, four sets of twins. My mom came from a family of six. We literally had the cousins by the dozens. Uh, you can ask Dave Weed. He's been there. He'll tell you their names. Okay? <laughs> why is this significant? Right? Here's why this is significant. It's the, this is the exact same type of setup that Jesus grew up in. They had lived in those small towns for generations. They knew each other. They walked between towns. They had time to talk. They did all this stuff together. And so, so they, knew, they knew each other. Jesus grew up in a rural, small town, closely networked community that also had relational connections in the other small towns close to it. And so they were in touch and you say, well, so what? Well, let's take a little closer look, and I think you'll start to see how this all plays out. Let's start with what we know. All right? We know that Jesus and John the Baptist were second cousins. All right? The angel said to Mary, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So we know that John the Baptist, we talked about John a little bit last week. John the Baptist and Jesus were second cousins and they were six months apart. So they were very close in age to each other. They, they were connected to each other. But even more interesting is that James and John were Jesus' first cousins. Did you know that? To understand this, we have to do a little sleuthing and connect some pieces. But I think you'll really enjoy this. So looking at Matthew chapter 4, 
It says, and going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. James and John, the two brothers, they were sons of Zebedee, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. This is Matthew's account, right, uh, of the same account that we're reading here in Mark. So James and John's are brothers, and from this passage, we know that their father's name was Zebedee. Right? So they were in the family fishing business together. Dad ran the business. They were helping dad. That's how it worked back then. You apprenticed that way. So the next step, if we go fast forward to the cross, Matthew gives us a description of who was at the cross watching this horrific event while it was taking place. And if you go to Matthew 27, it says, There also were many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So we know now that Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John, was at the cross um, when Jesus was being crucified, along with uh, Mary Magdalene and along with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So she is in this group of women uh, who are watching and it says that they had followed him since Galilee and they had actually been ones that had helped minister to him. And so there was a group of women that took care of uh, a lot of the needs that took place. You can imagine Jesus plus 13 guys. Okay, That doesn't equate to uh, good calculations for organization or cleanliness or any of those above mentioned things. And so there needed some women to help make the thing work and and these were the gals that helped. They came alongside and did that stuff. It says, so now going back to seeing the cross, we see something else from Mark's gospel. Now we'll jump to Mark. said there were also some women looking on at a distance, from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. There we see her again. Remember, she's from Magdala, that town that we saw on that map last week. Mary, the mother of James and the younger, and Joseph, or Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So now we have the identity and the name of James and John's mother. Her name is Salome. And John, the apostle, and James's brother, completes the picture for us in John chapter 19, Verse 25, he says this, So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And now the picture is completed. The mother of James and John is Salome, Mary's sister. This gives total insight into another incident that could be confusing until you realize who this woman is. You'll recognize this instantly as we bring it up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salome, Mary's sister came up to him, him being Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? 
And she said, See that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So if we put this all together, I've been working on this all week. I know you probably, it's catching your flesh. James and John were the sons of Zebedee, the fishermen. Zebedee's wife's name was Salome. Salome was Mary's sister. They were at the cross together when Jesus was crucified. Jesus and the brothers and James and John were first cousins. And it was Jesus' aunt, his aunt Salome, who requested that he put his cousins, her sons, James and John, at his right and left hand in the coming kingdom. Does that sound like an aunt or what? Right? Hey, we're family. We're family. These other guys, we're family. Right? You can just see Aunt Salome negotiating for her sons. But on a deeper level, what are the implications? Here's the deeper implications. Jesus knew these men. Many of them were younger than him, but he knew them and their family. Several of them were cousins. They were friends. They fished together on the Sea of Galilee. And so although the call in Mark looks immediate and random, it is anything but that. There have probably been many interactions through the years. Jesus knew who he was talking to and Jesus knew what he was talking to. It was a well thought out and calculated scheme by Jesus. Jesus knew what he was doing when he selected these men. And for them, it was a catalytic moment as well. They probably heard Jesus talk, right? Even as a kid or as a teenager going, "Eh, he's our cousin, he's a little different, but he's our cousin, you know? And and they, they grew up with that. They probably watched things that aren't recorded in Scripture and went, whoa, how did he do that? Why did he say that? Why did he say this? Right? And, and they were gathering information through all those years. For them, when this moment came, it was, a, again, a catalytic moment. He said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They knew that this was different and that a response was required. What does it say? Well, if you go back to Mark chapter 1, now back where we first began, it says, and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. In other words, there had been a conversation going on and it had been developing and they were processing who they thought Jesus was. And then there came this moment where Jesus walked by on a particular day and said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they knew the time had come. And it says what? Immediately they left their nets and followed them. And I think this is really important for us this morning. What is our response time when Jesus calls us to do something? Mark says here they responded what? Immediately. What's our response time? Well, as Americans, we kind of got to weigh it, right? I, I, I got to think this through. I got to weigh the pros and cons. I have to... That's not what it says here. It says they responded to him immediately. And I would suggest that many of us, 
myself included, uh, don't exclude me on this, we procrastinate. We, we drag our heels. We hem and haw. We stumble about. We pretend we didn't hear. We pretend we forgot. Because really we don't like the implications of what we think Jesus is telling us through the Holy Spirit. And I've got a great Christian life anyway, so this one little divot where I don't follow through really won't matter. Think how history would have been different if they had stayed in the boat. This sets a really good precedent for us. When the Lord calls, we should respond. And we should respond, what does it say? Immediately. Okay? I want to get that word out of your mouth. When should we respond? How should we respond? How quick should we respond? Okay? We should respond. Going a little further. Going a little further, literally. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, the two brothers, his first cousins, sitting in the boat. They were in the boat, mending their nets, and immediately called to them. And they left their father Zebedee, Jesus' uncle, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Notice again, Mark uses which word? Immediately. So he hits Andrew and Peter. He, they follow immediately. He hits James and John. They follow immediately. Notice they did not have a profound theological discussion over the eschatological nature of the request and its implications for their lives. This is where we get way too hung up on our knowledge, way too hung up on our our theological words, way too hung up on um, how does this fit within the context of uh, the church. Jesus wasn't asking that. What was Jesus asking him? Very simple. Come, what? Follow me. What are we supposed to be doing today? Come, follow him. Right? That is what we are, is a bunch of followers of Jesus who are in the process of following him. And we gather like this on a morning to encourage each other to keep following Because we get bungled up in that process. We get stalled. We get uh, distracted. We get sideways. We get off course. We go in the ditch. Uh, That's uh, not a hard illustration to imagine this morning is going off into the ditch. Slippery conditions. Life has a lot of slippery conditions to it that make it easy to go off into the ditch. And so we gather together because we're better together and we're able to encourage each other to stay on track. That's what they did. They followed him. Knowing who their mother was also helps us understand why their father didn't protest with them leaving the family business. He knew who Jesus was too. Right? He had watched him grow up. So what was Jesus doing? For us this morning, two particular things that are rock solid and really important when it comes to when you think of this thing called the church. And you think of people gathering together. There's two really important things that he was doing. One was he was team building. And two, he was disciple making. 
Team building and disciple making. Jesus was not a solo artist. And if you think about it, if anybody could have been, wouldn't it have been Jesus? Right? If somebody wanted to go their own way, if somebody wanted to be a lone ranger, if somebody wanted to not put up with the problems and the hiccups and the burps and the stalls that happen working with us as humans, wouldn't it be Jesus? And yet he was not a solo artist. He was a team player. And he felt it important to build the team. You know, just think about it for a second. Adding these guys did nothing but slow him down. Right? He was constantly having to recalibrate them and reclarify things for them. But adding them made sure the message would live long after he was gone. So there were advantages that he understood. There's a Nigerian proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And Jesus wanted to go far, and so he went together. And I want to suggest that's really important for us. We really, in America, like our independence. Uh, We strive for it. We fight for it. We like to be independent. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't like people crimping our style. Um, We often say, I just got to check out for a season and and get away. Uh, And and we just like to be independent. We like to be alone. But Scripture talks about the power of a team. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who could have done better with a team, at the end of his life, realizes this and says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Uh, we were shoveling snow and this uh, came to mind. So uh, we, it was Pam and Matt and I and Steve Doton and uh, Shannon. And it would have taken one person several hours and a lot of cramped muscles to shovel the snow with the five of us, we knocked it all out in an hour. And we had fun doing it. And because of that, when you walked up this morning, it was all clean and dry and not slippery and not icy and not compact. And, and we had a great time. It was just a lot easier to do it together with a team than it was to do it by yourself. It says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. You can accomplish more as a team. For if they fall, one will lift up this fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Jesus says, going alone sounds good till something falls apart, till you stumble, till you fall, and then there's nobody there to pick you up. And sadly, many people don't realize this to the end of their life, and they are all alone when they die. And there's nobody to lift them up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. (laughs) Kind of appropriate in this weather, right? But how can one keep warm alone? And although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is not just a clever proverb by Solomon. This was something that Solomon realized at the end of his life, that a team would have really kept him from making some of the mistakes that he made. And he made some horrendous mistakes. And again, What I like about Jesus is he always models for us before he asks us to do anything. 
I think that's absolutely one of the great traits I like about him that stands out to me. It's one of his hallmarks. We were meant to be together. We were never meant to be alone and be lone rangers. And so Jesus modeled this by putting together a team. Did he have to put a team together? Probably not. Did he want to put a team together? It seems to be that that was the plan him and his father came up with. That it was absolutely necessary. And again, we talked earlier, if it was good enough for Jesus to get baptized and he was willing to identify with us, wouldn't it make sense for us to get baptized with him and be willing to identify with him? And this brings another one of those points to this to the front, to the table. If Jesus was willing to be on a team, shouldn't we be willing to be on a team? At Norfolk here, we do these with community groups. Community groups, and the, the theme of our community groups is don't do life alone. Don't be out there by yourself. Get with a posse. The old West parlance is a posse. That's the people who ride the trail with you. Who rides the trail of life with you? Who's your posse? Who are you connected with? Who knows you? Who knows your heart? Who knows when you're hurting? Who knows when you're struggling? Who knows when you're doing well? Who knows when you're not? And who knows when you're lying? Okay? Posse knows when you're lying. They will look you right in the face and tell you to shut up. And they will tell you to tell the truth. And they'll tell you. I remember we had... uh, a group of guys, and we used to meet at 6 in the morning. This is 40 years ago. And, and we'd meet at 6, and we'd make pancakes, and we'd walk around. And this one guy, how's purity going? How's, oh, fantastic, I'm doing great. Shut up. And then he'd, okay, I'm doing terrible, you know, right? And, and that's what posse does. Posse gets in your grill, and you, don't, you can't fake the Christian life with posse because they know you. And at Northview here, we call it community groups. It's groups of people... Uh, 10 to 8, 8 to 12, probably a better way to say it, uh, of people that hang together as couples, individuals, singles. It doesn't really matter. But you're committed to meeting on a regular basis. And as my friend Matt Chu would say, it's life on life, right? Iron sharpens iron. It's being together and meeting together. It's breaking bread together. It's having a meal together. It's getting into each other's grill and knowing each other's life. And when something happens, you've got people to pray for you. I want to tell you that it makes a significant difference when you go something through something really hard and you know that you have people praying for you. I will tell people all the time, hey, we've got people praying for you. And they'll say, you know, we can tell. We can tell. We, we, we've sensed the difference, uh, especially when they're going through a really hard time. That's done by posse. That's done by community groups. If you just come to church and you walk in and you walk out, you're missing a great part of what Jesus intended because Jesus never really held church. But Jesus was in a community group the whole time. And they, they talked as he walked and they talked as they ate and they talked before they went to bed at night and they talked when they got up in the morning. And often his community group went out chasing him in the wilderness because he was out praying and they couldn't figure out where to find him and they had to go find where he went. And this is the idea of just being together. Don't do life alone. We need each other and we're better together. That's hard to believe sometimes, but we're better together. Okay? For all the warts and lumps and 
things that happen when we get close to each other because we're sinful people and, and we sin against each other and we, we have all kinds of hackles. A lot of times uh, small groups are, are like two porcupines in a snowstorm, right? You're out there freezing to death. So you come together, but then you prick each other. So then you go back out and you freeze to death. Then you come back to get warm, but you prick each other, right? We just do this yo-yo routine. Uh, and and we, we battle with that. But we're better together. We're better together this morning. Look at us. You did not have to get up this morning. You did not have to come here. The weather gave you an absolute out. Pretty hard to get out of our driveway, Steve. We won't make it this morning. Lots of churches closed down. Rightfully so, probably, right? Our, our friends at North Creek, it's an older group. That's wise. They didn't want somebody falling in the parking lot, right? But we're better together this morning. And did you, did you listen to the tone of the conversation when you walked in this morning? I was listening to it. There was joy. You were glad you were here. And there was an extra excitement in talking to each other and seeing each other and we're hanging and there was apple cider and coffee and people were talking. It was a great buzz in the room. And I suspect there will be a great buzz uh, as we go out together as well. Why? Because everybody who came here this morning wanted to be here. Everybody who came here this morning wanted to honor God. Everybody who came this morning said, it's important. If I can go somewhere else, I can make it to church. Now, there's people who can't, right? A number of our elderly couldn't make it, right? There's people who can't get out. If you're listening to this on tape, don't feel guilt, right? (laughs) Absolve you of that. But isn't it great to be here? And we're going to go home this afternoon, and the snow will start falling, and what will we say? Man, it was good to be at church. Man, that was good to do. Don't do life alone. We need each other. We're better together. You know, if you, if you want to get in a community group, just get a hold of myself, John Templin. John, raise your hand over there, please. That uh, Up high. There we go. That's John. Right? You can get a hold of Shannon. Uh, just let us know, and we will try to help get you tied into a group. And it becomes something that, after a while, you don't know how you do life without it. The other thing that Jesus was doing ties into this, and they're almost so seamless sometimes we forget all about it, but that was he was uh, in the process of discipleship. First, Jesus had to get them to believe in him. Not that he was Jesus, but that he was actually the Son of God. There'd be a little jump there, right? Oh yeah, my cousin claims to be God. Hmm. All right. We'll, we'll think about that for a second, right? He had to get them to believe in him and, and he had to get them to get the kingdom, his kingdom, what he was about, what he was bringing, what this new thing was going to be and its message. And he had to get that message embedded in them. That means it had to be internalized. It had to be owned by them. Again, high school, junior high. Your mom and dad's faith is great. It got you this far. That's awesome. It will not get you farther. It's got to become your own. It's great that Jesus is real for your parents. It's great that Jesus is real for Pastor Steve. It's great that Jesus is real for these guys. But he's got to become your Jesus. You've got to encounter him. You've got to meet him. It's not enough to just sit in the chair. You've got to know him. It makes all the difference in the universe. And this 
is found in his final charge given to them before he ascends into heaven, this discipleship piece. If you look at Matthew 28, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They're like, wow, what is really going on here? Can dead people really rise? And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I love saying that. It's so cool to say it. Like, you know the best part of the wedding? You don't do weddings. I do them all the time. All right? Uh, you know what's become the favorite part of the wedding for me? Is the place where we get to do this Trinitarian part. Like, for as much as Walt and Linda have consented before God in these vows a long time ago to become husband and wife, I now pronounce them husband and wife. Yes, I have it memorized. I, you do it several hundred times, it's not hard. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is a powerful, powerful equation. And Jesus uses that here in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of, this, the, end of the age. What was the commission? We call this the Great Commission. What's the commission? The commission is to make disciples. The same way Jesus did. First, you've got to lead them to Jesus. They've got to know him. Secondly, then, you've got to disciple them. You've got to pour your life into them. You've got to share what you know. Now, the problem, we formalize this sometimes to our own fault in that Steve, Pastor Steve, is the one who's in charge of discipleship. That's true. But that takes the onus off of us to pour our life into somebody that we really have invested in and build them up as a disciple. What does it really mean to make disciples? Here's a scriptural definition, and it's real simple. Okay? 2 Timothy 2.2 says this, Then you, Paul is talking to Timothy, his child in the faith, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. So here's Paul, and he says, Timothy, what you've learned from me, take that, turn around, and you dump that into somebody else. And you say, oh, I could never do that. I, I've not gone to seminary. I'm not called to be a pastor. I, I can't do that. Oh, for Pete's sakes. Are we kidding? Really? You most certainly can. I remember when I first came to Christ and the people at Bethel Baptist Church in Green Bay poured their lives into me. I remember some of their quotes to this day. Okay? That's 43 years ago. I remember some of those, the very things. I remember the people. I remember what they said. I remember some prophetic things that were said that said I would be a youth pastor one day. They never included the head pastor piece. <laughs> so God went beyond that. But I remember what they said, and I remember being mentored by Pastor Jan, and almost everything you get from me is what I got from him. Right? And I dump that into people when I meet with them one-on-one -on -one all the time. And my goal isn't to get them to accept Christ. My goal is to get them to surrender, because I know the authority issue is such a big issue. That's my goal with us. Get us to surrender. Why? Because it's what I learned. Surrender to his grace. Doesn't sound so awful when you say it that way, right? 
But we know the authority piece is really there. It's passing on to others what Jesus has given you. Usually through the efforts of another brother or sister in Christ and through the life expressed uh, in the local church, when you think about it, it's nothing more or less than local believers gathering. Right? We come together to encourage each other. When you think of it, what is a church? Well, a church is a team that which we can do far more together than we could do apart. Right now, because of us, this morning, as we sit here while you're doing church, there are missions and ministries going around the world that we support. Go and look out at that wall in the hallway and look at how many there are. That stuff wouldn't exist, half of them, if we weren't here. Just think of all the stuff that exists just because we're here. Think of what the Lord's done. Our goals for the fall with the capital campaign, we had three targets. Do you remember the three targets that we listed? One was possibility of buying our building. One was enabling a smooth transition, right, in leadership for this church so we do it wisely and smartly down the road here coming up pretty quick. And then church planting, why church planting? Why, why, is, why do I keep coming up with that? Why, why does that matter? Because in America, we are failing in the discipleship process. Not we, us specifically, we, us corporately as a nation. All right? And I picked up some stuff this week that um, I learned and really showed how desperate this situation is. Uh, we're in a desperate place right now, uh, much more desperate than we actually know. Let me show you why. Here's the issue of barrenness in our country. Right now, as we are here, there are about 300,000 churches in America. Now, at first glance, that's a big number, right? That's not a big number. How many of you have been to New York? How many of you have been to L.A.? How many of you have been to Chicago? How many of you have been to Detroit? Or how many of you have been to Minneapolis? Or how many have been, right? Houston, Dallas. Think of the cities. Think how big this country is. That's not a lot of churches. That has declined from about 600,000 churches in its heyday. We've lost half in the last 40 years. And we haven't thought we've noticed it, but we've noticed it in terms of the effect of our country. Of those churches, of these 300,000 churches in our country... 96% are barren. That means out of those 300,000 churches, 96% of them have never planted another church. So in your mind, how do you think that bodes well for our country in terms of the sustaining the message of the gospel? We're quickly becoming Europe. Okay, We're quickly becoming Europe. It's a, it's a scary thing. Of the 4% that were planted, they're sterile as well. So even though we plant churches, this mom church plants this daughter church, that daughter church doesn't go on and plant another church. And so what happens is the whole system has grown to a halt and there's not much happening. 
Now, fortunately, we're in Converge USA. And right now, by the grace of Jesus, we are in the number one church planting conference in the country. Okay? That's, that's, that's pretty cool. But the numbers are not good across the board. And so this process of team and this process of discipleship, if we don't take it to the next generation, guys, your generation, if we don't span it and get it to there, the church will die in one generation. Everything you know about church, everything you know about the Lord will go bye-bye. It will be gone. It's your generation that's going to have to carry it. Challenging, isn't it? Who's God going to raise up to do that? We've planted two daughter churches. Both of them have died. Okay? There's grief. There was money spent. Uh, so we should probably never do that again, right? I don't know of a healthy couple that doesn't want to have kids just because they had a miscarriage. I'd like to be one of those churches that has great-granddaughters. I haven't given up that dream. We desperately need God to multiply churches and multiply disciples and multiply teams across this country. Jesus knew that. Why? Because it was the same way when He showed up. It was a desperate era. You don't have to read very far at all to realize not much was good was happening when Jesus showed up. It was a great time. It was a perfect time. It was God's timing when Jesus showed up. And he built a team that the world has never gotten over, never will get over. I just think it's a perfect time for Jesus to show up again. And when you think about that capital campaign fall, don't think about, oh, does this cost me money or that kind of thing. Think about, could we be a team? Could we be the type of church that isn't sterile or barren? Could we be the type of group of people that speeds the gospel forward? That we get proactive on top of it and we get sacrificial. We already are living sacrificial. More? Yeah. God can make something out of nothing. It's not dependent on us or our bootstraps. It's dependent on His grace. But I'd love to be a group of people that says, we'd like to cooperate with you. And Jesus says, follow me. We go, we will. And we do it immediately. That? Yes. Okay. You'll get us there. And I'd love to see it burst out in the Northwest. Really, the Northwest is an absolutely fabulous place for a revival. Why? Because nobody in the world would expect it to start in the Northwest. Okay? We are the most independent, God-stubborn, stiff-necked, not want to join or be part of a club group of anti-God people in the entire country. Right? You realize living the gospel here is like pounding on concrete. Any of you notice that? And you realize if you want to be a believer here, you better really want to be a believer because it's not that cool. Wouldn't it be awesome for Jesus to burst out in the Northwest with a revival that would flip the country on its ear and make the Jesus revolution look like a puff of smoke? Wouldn't that be cool? I'm, I'm still angling for that. I'm asking the Lord for that. I'm asking the Lord to see it while I'm still in this pulpit. I'm asking the Lord to turn the dial. 
And I think with people like you who show up on a snowy day that you don't have to, I think it can happen. And I think we can speed the gospel ahead by if we cooperate with His grace. He will give us grace we've never had before. He knows how to give a greater grace. Often when someone has someone die in their family, my tagline is, may Jesus grant a greater grace in the weeks or months ahead. And it's meant there that they would experience a grace they had hadn't experienced before, knowing that God was close to them in their time of loss. But isn't it just as true that God could grant us a greater grace that we have never had before at Norfolk? I mean, we've seen God do some serious grace stuff here. The building we're sitting in is a miracle, right? We have no right to be in this building, and and most of us who were there in the beginning know that. Wouldn't it be awesome if God gave us a greater grace that we could do more in the next five years than we've done in the previous 25? I believe. Will you join me in prayer? Father, as we think about this, as we wrestle with this, as we think about team and discipleship, we know it's you. We uh, build things, Lord, that kind of fall apart. And when our hands get on it, it gets muddy and sticky and dirty really quick. But your grace can overcome all of that. And your will, Lord, we, we pray for your will to be done here on earth, in Mill Creek, our specific locality, as it is in heaven. And we pray that you would deliver us from evil. We sense it. We can see it. It's a tsunami ready to swallow us. Many of us are concerned. Many of us are fearful, and probably rightfully so, till we stop and look at you. You didn't bring us this far to kill us, Lord. You brought us this far to be witnesses. You brought us this far to share your gospel. You brought us this far to build disciples. And you brought us this far to put us in teams so that we could do it effectively. God, may that grace pour out on us as a local body. And for the other churches in the area too, Lord, it's not like we're winning. We need your supernatural help. And we ask for this in your name. Amen.